What's up, guys? Uh, I'm here with Joe Gilfeder, uh, my former classmate at Springfield College, uh, who is now currently the, the head strength and conditioning coach at, at Fordham. Uh, I don't know if I botched that title a little bit, but uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Joe has a ton of experience working with, with multiple sports and is a great resource when it comes to collegiate strength and conditioning, somebody who really does it the right way and understands how to develop an athlete over the course of a four-year period. So, Joe, if you just want to introduce yourself and just kind of tell us a little bit about the, the program at Fordham, what's going on there. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. And I actually like head strength coach better than my actual title. My actual title is like assistant AD, but, you know, I want to just put head weights coach on the, uh, on the door as opposed to uh, <laughs> long administrative name. So, um, yeah, right now I've been at Fordham going on my third year, started in March of 2018. Prior to that, I was at Dartmouth College uh, for about three years. Um, and then just previous to that, right, we were back at Springfield College from 2013 to 2015 and uh, was able to be a GA there um, and concurrently worked actually at American International College right there in Springfield uh, with their football team. And then previous to that, you know, I was getting my uh, undergraduate degree at uh, Ithaca College in uh, upstate New York. But, um, you know, very, very fortunate to be down here in the Bronx now and work uh, with the football team, uh, men's and women's swimming and diving, and the cheerleading team. And then overseeing the, uh, the rest of my staff. I've got three other full-time staff members, Steve Giorgio, uh, Gio Grassi, and uh, Josh Greer, who, who do a great job for us. That's awesome. That's awesome. I think, uh, obviously, we've been to a lot of continuing education together and, and going through the Springfield College uh, graduate program on the same page with a lot of things. But I think something unique about Fordham and something that you've implemented is the, the assessment protocols early on and some of the things that you do with the younger guys, the freshmen. So can you talk about some of the, some of the things that you see when guys come in uh, that they should have? in terms of physical qualities that, that are often not developed as much as they could be kind of limiting that ceiling of their athletic potential? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, very, you know, heavily influenced by Charles Pollock. And obviously, you know, we went to a few of his um, uh, seminars together. So we'll do a, a complete biomechanical assessment and we'll look at um, everything from joint mobility, how the athlete moves to then again, you know, more, uh, performance related protocols. Uh, one of the biggest things that I see um, with our student athletes coming in is the inability to get in a deep squat position. You know, they've just never trained there. They've never been there. And when we do an overhead squat, uh, similar to what you would see in, a, in an FMS uh, assessment is, you know, lack of ankle mobility, lack of hip mobility, lack of uh, the ability to have thoracic extension and keep an upright torso. So I see that a lot of athletes are just not comfortable bending through the hips, knees, and ankles, as well as keeping a chest up. You know, I think this comes a lot from possible ego when it's going to be in high school lifting, you know, uh, whether that be wanting to put more and more weight on the bar and then shortchanging the range of motion, um, or just that, they, you know, poor coaching in, in regards to strength and conditioning. You know, I know I didn't have a strength and conditioning coach in high school, um, you know, to be able to guide me and be able to, you know, teach me that, you know, true strength is going to come after you've developed that range. You know, we want to establish great range of motion before adding load, control within that range of motion before adding load. 
Uh, so that's one of the biggest things that I see uh, with the athletes coming nowadays. And then, you know, we, we typically get a lot of athletes from the Northeast. And I know growing up in New, New Jersey, you know, it was a lot of bench and not that many poles. So when we do our um, biomechanical assessment, we'll actually look at the relationship between our flat bench press and our chin-up. So, you know, I typically want a one-to-one, one RM strength uh, ratio in that regard. So if I can bench press 300 pounds, I want to be able to do a chin-up with 300 pounds. And if I weigh 200 pounds, that means 100 pounds strapped to me. And when we, you know, emphasize our chin-ups, we emphasize a complete, you know, elbow extended shoulder flex position, or I should say shoulder uh, extended position or flex. And then all the way with our chest getting to the bar and then uh, minimal kipping or body English um, and then controlling it down. So I really, really emphasize, you know, having balance between our pushing muscles and our pulling muscles, as well as chaining our lower body throughout a full range of motion. You know, we'll couple that with, you know, a lot of key performance indicators that I think a lot of other strength and conditioning programs would utilize, uh, particularly for football. You know, we'll look at pro agility. We'll look at broad jump, vertical jump. Um, you know, uh, we do more of 10-yard and 20-yard dashes as opposed to 40-yard dash. You know, football being more of an accelerative sport, you know, that's really where, um, you know, the money is made. So I want to make sure that we've got the strength and the acceleration within that 10 to 20 yards. Uh, we do test some of the 40-yard dash, but it's, it's very sparingly just to make sure that uh, we keep the athletes as healthy as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one, one thing, going back and training high school athletes right now, a, a big revelation is that there is so much, for whatever reason, emphasis placed on the bench press and very little placed in the chin-up where, you know, if you ask me in high school, college, even post-college, even in Springfield, you know, what's the king of upper body exercises? I'm 100% telling you the bench press. And I really, really changed my view. I think maybe it's because I got older, because of, you know, injuries or inability to, to press the same amount that I could early on. But, hey, that, that weighted chin-up is really going to be the king. It's going to be a really big determinant of your, your biomechanical symmetry. And if you don't have the ability to do that, especially as a heavier individual, there are some things that you really got to correct, whether that be body composition or just your, your relative strength. It's, a, it's such a huge indicator of athleticism because you will never find anybody, you know, who's really, really fast and explosive who can't do a chin-up. You know, they're so correlated. And the same thing, like, if somebody's really good at chin-ups, it's a good percentage chance that that person is lean, athletic, can move their body through space. Even though you might think of it as an upper body exercise, I really think it's a, a total body indicator of athleticism, you know, and, and you just got to make sure that you're doing it correctly. Um, a lot of athletes will shortchange that range of range of motion because they're not comfortable, you know, in that fully, you know, vulnerable extended position. But that's another indicator to me of shoulder health. Like if somebody can't fully flex that shoulder overhead and get the bicep by the ear and fully extend that arm, I, I've seen a lot of evidence for increased shoulder injuries if they can't be strong in that type of position. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that goes back to the functional movement screen that you touched on earlier. Obviously, if there's an issue just simply getting the arm overhead, there's going to be, it's going to be very challenging to be able to do a quality chin-up. And if it's not quality, I think we're, we're both on the same page where there's no in-between, there's no gray area. Either it's a great rep, which is going to be perfect, arm totally locked out, 
chin above the bar or it's not. There's no, maybe I got it, maybe I didn't. So that's yeah. something to be pretty strict on. Um, you hit the nail on the head too with the pressing too. It's, I, that, that's a mistake I think I made early on at Springfield. That's a mistake. Sometimes I even have to make sure that I stay uh, conscious of it now is being strong from multiple different angles of pressing, you know, and not being married to the straight bar, you know, the Swiss bar or football bar, whatever you want to call it is a great tool. Um, a low incline, a high incline, you know, with this quarantine, I've been doing a lot of overhead pressing, you know, with dumbbells or with a, a kettlebell. And, you know, it only makes sense to be strong in those positions. It only makes sense that if I'm stronger overhead, once I get to an incline, once I get to a low incline, once I get to a flat bench press, I'm only going to be stronger in that position too. So having that structural balance and being able to press strong from different angles, uh, it's not only going to lead to a better flat bench press, but just overall shoulder health in general. Yeah, absolutely. I think one, one um, pretty, I guess, more challenging from a coaching perspective aspect of it is when you get guys who are a little bit bigger, when you get your 6'5", six, 6'6", six, 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 guys, and whether that be for basketball or whether you get it for linemen in football, and they're going to have a tougher time naturally getting up there and not necessarily because their total body weight, it could be arm length. And obviously that lever is going to be a lot longer. Can you talk about some of the progressions you might use for a bigger guy or some, number one, taller, and then number two, somebody who's heavier. So how, how do you approach those two situations? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't work with basketball right now, but I've got a, a long history working with basketball, both at Fordham and uh, at Dartmouth and a lot of those guys are just not used to going through full range of motion, whether you're talking about, you know, a body weight exercise like a chin up or, you know, something more on the loaded sense of a squat. Um, first off, you know, with the chin up, uh, you know, I was heavily influenced uh, by Charles Poliquin, you know, so we'll emphasize a lot of eccentric movement, you know, so we'll jump up above the pull up bar and then work on lowering ourselves as slowly as possible. So we'll do a 30-second eccentric, or that's the goal to work up to, a 30-second eccentric with constant movement all the way from our chest to the bar to arms extended at the bottom position. You know, and it could just be one set day one, you know, if an athlete is really um, at a poor spot as far as their development. You know, 30 seconds of eccentric time under tension for a 300-pound-plus uh, individual, it could be intense. You know, it could be intense. It could create a lot of muscle damage. But eventually, we're going to build up two sets, three sets, four sets in that regard um, for a chin-up. And typically, when an athlete can do a great, you know, 30-second eccentric, it's a good indicator that they can do one full chin-up. Uh, I'd also be remiss to say that if we didn't focus on nutrition and body composition, you know, that chin-up is going to be harder and harder and harder to get. Uh, so those individuals that can't do a first chin up yet, whether it be, uh, you know, a heavy male over 300 pounds and just not that strong from a relative strength uh, perspective, or some of our female athletes who just haven't developed that, you know, physical strength yet. Um, the emphasis on eccentrics, the emphasis on holding isometrics in those positions where they may struggle, whether that be that full closure of the elbow joint or halfway down, or maybe even closer to an elbow extended position is important, but also the nutrition piece. You know, we want to optimize body composition throughout the athlete's time period here. So we actually measure, uh, with the football team, I'll measure every month um, our body fat. Um, right now, I just do a seven site. I really want to learn, you know, uh, 13 site, possibly 14 site bo body fat protocol that 
was within that biosignature and metabolic analytics. I haven't learned it quite yet, but I've uh, been experimenting a little bit with it. Um, but we'll do a seven-site body fat, and you can kind of get a picture of not only the, the total body fat percentage, but hormonally what might be going on uh, with the athlete in particular um, based on where they store body fat. And then we could start to make uh, a little bit more individualized uh, changes to nutrition, but also just tracking our body fat over time so that we can decrease that and, and continue to build our strength and, and relative strength to get to that chin up. Um, you know, when it comes to doing you know, a full range of motion squat for some of our taller athletes or bigger athletes who's never been there, you know, we really go back to a structural balance type um, approach. So we'll emphasize a lot of front foot elevated split squats, uh, particularly with the tempo, so that we can teach that athlete how to get that knee over the toe, how to achieve great dorsiflexion, how to bend that knee, bend that hip, um, and get strong in a range of motion where they previously have not been. So really developing the VMO, really developing um, great ankle dorsiflexion, and, and doing it more from a hypertrophy or uh, structural balance programming perspective, some higher reps, some higher time under tension, so that we can actually develop the muscle, develop the control, and get those repetitions in a position where they normally are not used to. Um, you know, we'll use uh, step-up variations. We'll utilize uh, the front foot elevated split squat, like I said. And then we'll also utilize um, some tempo training with a goblet squat or a front squat. Um, and then finally transitioning to a back squat when that, when that athlete is ready. But it's all along the line, lines of a continuum. So we'll, we'll really start um, from the ground up, making sure that they can, you know, fully, uh, you know, do a full squat or do a full chin up and, and then building it up from that point forward. Yeah, that's pretty eye-opening. And again, in this situation, you're looking at ankle dorsiflexion as, as a key limiting factor, which can be picked up through the functional movement screen. I think some area that I've been kind of progressing in a little bit or evolving my, my particular program is when it comes to specific joints and looking at a particular range of motion, we have to understand that that range of motion is going to be different on a day-to-day -day basis. We've been using controlled articular rotations as part of our program now with individual clients, which is a little bit easier on mine. It's tougher to see when you're in a group setting. But being able to identify whether there, there is a lack of range of motion at the wrist or at the ankle or at the hip on any particular day, those uh, ranges of motion could be different. However, the exposure to that range of motion by doing things like you said, front foot elevated uh, split stance lunge or um, full range of motion squats is going to expose the athlete to that range of motion. And if we look at from a levels of organization standpoint, working all the way down to the cellular level, it provides exposure to the nervous system, which is going to be so crucial because the nervous system isn't going to know whether or not it's, you know, I'm squatting under a load in a football training building, or I'm out on the field and I have to get down into a really low position for whatever reason. Uh, so that's been pretty effective. Uh, do, you, do you use any other type of protocols to identify or does that kind of happen as a byproduct of good training? So you're going to have good training. So inevitably it's going to lead to better mobility at the joints that you want to have good mobility in. It's definitely going to identify itself in the training. I think we're always looking for like the perfect assessment, you know, whether it be the FMS or the FRA or the SFMA or, you know, whatever it's going to be, we're always looking for the perfect assessment. You know, there's a couple exercises, like I said, the overhead squat, 
you know, we'll actually measure ankle dorsiflexion um, to try and achieve a certain degree um, that we're, we're looking to achieve. You know, we'll, we'll do certain um, evaluations, but a lot of it's going to come through the training. You know, a lot of it's going to be identified early in the training. And I think you hit the key word there, um, which was the nervous system. You know, we don't want to just do strictly flexibility or passive mobility evaluations. You know, we want the nervous system to be involved. So I found the FRC concepts to be completely eye-opening and an absolute game changer. You know, and we've implemented a lot of that stuff within our warm-up as well as, as well as within part of our training. You know, whether it be A block, you know, we're doing some ankle pails and rails with our front squatting, you know, to really make sure that we're trying to develop that range of motion, but also develop that neurological control within that range of motion. So that it's not just passive and we lose that tension and we lose that control, but it's an actually a, a new area, a new range of motion that we gained access to and are strong in. Um, so that was one of the best continuing education uh, courses I've taken, you know, in, in recent memory. And it's been a huge game changer for our program. Um, and it's not, I think people will look at FRC as a, you know, oh, it's the mobility certification or it's a flexibility certification. If you do some of those drills, they are just as intense, just as demanding as any loaded movement that you may do with a barbell, dumbbells, you know, cable machine, anything like that. Um, it's true internal training. It's true training of that joint and its capacity to develop force. And when you eliminate, you know, some of that neurological inhibition that that joint may have, you can really see some great things in regards to performance enhancing just because you've taken away that inhibition that was previously there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's so critical just to be able to gain strength within that range of motion. That's where there's kind of that, that gap that FRC or the FRS system kind of bridges. Having exposure to a certain range of motion does not mean that that range of motion is going to be transferable to sport. And if we can identify specific joint angles in which an individual is weak in, we're going to be able to strengthen those angles and those are now going to be usable as opposed to something not to knock yoga is going to be great and everything like that. But this is a totally different practice that has a purpose that has a lot more intent from a nervous system standpoint, from a voluntary muscular contraction standpoint, where if you're doing progressive angular isometric loading, you are, you're sweating, you're dying. Any isometric is still going to be an overload to the system. Your body doesn't know the difference between a barbell and the ground. And if you're trying to push through the ground, that can be even more intense than pushing uh, with a barbell because you don't have any ability to over exceed the capacity of the object on the ground or whatever you're trying to go against. And then, you know, reversing that and trying to go against air in more of a yielding isometric would be just as challenging and open up a whole new range of motion for the body. Yeah. I, I mean, when we were doing some of the, you know, uh, some of the holding, the holds that we had to do like from a hip flexor standpoint and a lower abdominal standpoint, you know, some of the 90-90 uh, hip internal rotation stuff. You walk away and you've worked muscles inside that joint capsule that you have never touched with a squat, with a lunge, with, uh, with that. So it's absolutely critical, I think, uh, as far as improving that joint capsule and, like you said, usable range of motion. Right. And if we look back to, our, to most goals of the strength and conditioning coach, the number one goal is going to be to reduce the risk of injury. 
And I think yeah. Dr. Dr. Spina said it really well when he, when he talked about you're always going to regret not, tra not training the position that you get injured in. And again, it just goes back to exposure. So that, that, that's really big, really big. Uh, so you have the freshmen, you create these assessments, they progress. What does it look like a year or two down the line after they've established that linear training program, they've gotten that, that linear periodization model down, and now they need some type of additional stimulus to continue to grow over that four-year period? Because you can't train them train the senior the same way that you would a freshman. It's totally different. Eventually there's going to be a law of diminishing returns. So what do you do as you move on? How do you progress them? So absolutely. You know, we'll definitely keep things a little bit more basic, but we're going to progress a freshman as strong, you know, as quickly um, as they earn it, as quickly as they demonstrate strength. You know, if I have a freshman who, you know, struggles benching 135 pounds, they are not going to progress as fast as that athlete who comes in and, and can already bench 400 pounds. You know, at Springfield, you would see that, you know, you'd see some athletes, you know, their strength level was just so high coming in. And occasionally we will get an athlete who comes in who, who was very well trained. So that athlete who maybe hasn't touched a barbell and struggles with 135, you know, I'm going to use much more basic linear periodization with that athlete and, and let it run its course so we can really, um, you know, really get the most out of not getting too complicated with our program. You know, some athletes, um, you know, we need to uh, get a little bit, uh, I guess, more advanced quicker, you know, more quickly. Um, and that's completely based on strength level. It's not just biological age. It's not just how many years you've been in the training program um, or, or my training program, but I have to take into account the training that they did in high school as well. So if they, you know, demonstrate great competency in what we're doing, great discipline with what we're trying to do, you know, that freshman may uh, progress into that more advanced program quicker than some of his peers. You know, with that being said, um, I do like employing some velocity-based training. Uh, we've got a gym aware at every single rack. So that typically will happen around two years into our training program. You know, we want the athletes to probably get you know, pretty damn close to a, to a two times body weight back squat, um, you know, anywhere from between 1.8 to 2.0 times their, their body weight in a full back squat before we start employing some of our, um, our velocity based work. But again, I, I'll let that, um, you know, obviously I use a lot of approaches from uh, Louis Simmons and Westside Barbell in regards to how we're going to uh, work that rate of force development and how we're going to program that. Um, so that's something that we definitely utilize, uh, with a lot with our guys, but also with some of our other programs, you know, we will rotate between, you know, periods of more accumulation, uh, where the repetitions are going to be a little bit higher. That time under tension is going to be a little bit higher. And those periods tend to fall more in the off season or developmental times. Um, and then we'll have periods where we're going to intensify things and we're going to intensify things either through more weight, less time under tension, or, um, during specific times of the year, we might lighten the weight actually and focus a little bit more on rate of force production. You know, the bar's a little bit lighter. We might have accommodating resistance in the form of, of bands or chains on the bar and really focus on speed. And that's why I really enjoy having the gym aware there so that I can be pretty objective in not only the weight on the bar, but, um, you know, how we've progressed over time, you know, to see 
how fast you know we move the barbell now versus we did one year ago, two years ago, to really see how powerful our athletes are are becoming. So just in a you know a brief kind of view of our training program, that's how we uh, advance things a little bit. I think some of the comments you made regarding the ability to move through the program a little bit quicker are extremely valuable for the high school athlete to understand. A lot of times if you are performing exercises to boost your ego from a numbers standpoint, there's a great chance that number one, you're not getting, for example, on the squat, you're not getting your depth on the bench press, you're overloading your shoulder in a way that's going to be more indicative of future injury than anything else. Is it better? Would you rather have a high school athlete come to you doing things the wrong way and you adjust it? Or would you rather have them coming to you with very limited understanding or just a quality training program with lower loads and then you can kind of mold it? What, what would you rather have, that strength base initially? Or, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it – to me, it seems like an easy answer. You know, I want that blank canvas. You know, I want an athlete that moves very well and is low body fat. You know, that's all I want. Because a lot of, you know, on a lot of these recruiting trips and recruiting meetings, you know, the parents are like, what should they be benching? What should they be squatting? What should they be cleaning? And it's like, I feel like as the strength and conditioning professional, I should be able to give them concrete numbers. Like, oh, they should be doing this. They should be doing that. But inevitably, my answer comes back to, listen, I want my athletes to be able to move really well through a full range of motion and be a low body fat. If we can start with those two things, you know, I can build you up. I can teach you exactly what we need to do, you know, to become that beast on the field. But when you get an athlete that thinks they know how to do a, a clean, when they think they know what a full range of motion squat is, when they think, you know, their bench press is, you know, the flat bench press is, is the Holy grail of upper body, you know, activity. That's something where I have to kind of break that mindset and, and teach them that, you know, those numbers that you think you have, those, you know, metrics that you think you have or those exercises that you think are important, you know, really aren't that important in regards to our performance, our longevity on the field, and ultimately your success within our program. So I, I definitely would have a kid who has not lifted at all, has not done an Olympic lift at all, has not done a squat at all. But um, they can move well. They've got full range of motion through all their major joints. And they come in with a low body fat. You know, that's really uh, an ideal situation for me. That's great. I think the, the recruiting trips are, are really classic when they come in saying they can, they can squat 600, you know, and you get them under the bar with 225 and the range of motion is so limited. And you just, hey, man, you're setting yourself up for, for injury. We got we to gotta recharge and kind of get you down to the basics, break everything down, get that full range of motion, and identify the joint that's, that, that's kind of the limiting factor in terms of uh, you being able to get down there and kind of, kind of progress from there. Um, so I think going into nutrition and body composition you talked a lot about is a huge rabbit hole. And we could probably sit here all day and talk about that and the value of body composition. But I guess what would you look for uh, from a body composition standpoint in different sports and then from different positions, are you looking for changes or is it just a relatively lean position? What I found is a lot of times there is an issue with is body weight or body composition more important depending on the position of the athlete and the sport that they play. Mm -hmm. 
So we'll definitely, you know, I'll use football for an example. And then, you know, obviously it would be different for females, but with our skill position guys, we're looking for those guys to be sub 10% body fat. You know, that's really uh, kind of the marker that we're looking at, you know, at that point in time, you're going to be able to see, you know, visible abs, uh, you know, down the middle. Um, for some of our more combo guys, we're looking for, you know, around 16 to 15% or lower, you know, we've got, you know, some linebackers who are under 10, you know, but we also have some linebackers, tight ends and quarterbacks who are going to be in that 12 to 16 range, you know, and then some of our linemen, you know, uh, we're looking for around 20%, you know, body fat, you know, give or take a little bit. Um, so the expectation for body fat percentage is not the same for every single position. We're always looking to optimize body fat percentage um, to a certain degree. You know, if, if, an athlete is at five or 6% body fat as a defensive back. I'm not too concerned with getting them down to three or four or, or what have you like that. You know, particularly those type of athletes, you're probably looking to uh, take advantage of that insulin sensitivity and put on uh, some muscular body weight. Um, so, you know, optimizing body composition at that point in time is not much of a concern for me. But if we've got, you know, an alignment who's carrying around 30% body fat, um, and it shows that they're, it's hard for them to control that weight, meaning they, they struggle with chin-ups, their broad jump, uh, their 10-yard dash um, is hindered by that. You know, we're going to take some more drastic nu nutrition uh, measures to help optimize that body comp. But it's certainly based on the position. Um, it's not just universal across the entire, uh, entire team. Really great stuff. One, one area that seems to be an issue or, or was at least in my experience was guys coming in saying that they were X, Y, and Z in terms of their body fat percentage. Then you get in there and you test them and they're nowhere near what they said they were. So generally, as you alluded to was less than 10%, you're going to be able to see the linea alba straight down the middle. You'll see some of the cuts. You'll be able to make out the all six uh, abdominal muscles that are visible. Um, and then as you get up higher, that be, obviously becomes a little bit harder to see but that's one good way to to test body composition just through through the eyes uh, we also have to make note that body composition testing is going to vary between modalities so a bod pod is going to be different than the, if you use skin calipers so you can't go on what is used at their current gym or with their personal trainer right now you have to go on what is done at the school with that specific coach. Obviously, if you have a baseline number and you're doing it consistently over time, you want to see that go down. But there are so many variables, at least that I see, uh, out in the private sector where guys are taking body comp at 2 p.m. in the afternoon after they had, you know, three meals and a shake. And there's some, some gyms out there that are telling them that this is your body composition where it's just so inaccurate. You've got to be extremely precise when you get into body composition testing. First thing in the morning, no food in the belly, uh, you know, things like that make a difference. And in order to be consistent and have reliable data, you've had, you have to take those things into consideration. The key word right there is just consistency. You know, I'm not a fan of some of those bioelectric impedance, you know, um, things, you know, we do the calipers, like I said, but if you're going to do the calipers, you're going to do it at the same time every single month or every single week, however you want to do it. Um, and frankly, I do it with the same exact person. So I will body fat test, you know, all 90 guys on the team. I don't let any of my assistants doing it so that we've got that, 
you know, inter-rater reliability. It's not my assistant who maybe went an inch too low or an inch too high or different than I did. If, if an athlete wants to use some of those bioelectric impedance uh, measures, that's fine. I wouldn't trust the overall number, but we can see trends over time. So if they're consistent at 7 a.m. for months, for years, you know, uh, where they test this, I don't really care if it says 8% or 12%, but did it go down um, over time? Did we make improvements over time? Then I could see it, it providing some value. But as far as, um, you know, really being a valid measure, I either want to do, you know, DEXA, BODPOD, or, or the calipers. Absolutely. And, and obviously body composition is going to be a really great representation of your overall health your overall potentially correlating with athletic ability. Obviously, if your body composition isn't too good, doesn't mean that you're not going to be a great athlete, but you're going to be able to optimize your performance, um, you know, with a lower body composition. So, hey, man, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I know we could probably go on all day with this and dive into that nutrition rabbit hole, dive into assessments a little bit deeper. But I think it gave a really good overview of what a high school athlete can expect at the next level if they're looking to do that and, and some of the things that, will prepare that will best prepare them and kind of alleviate some of the misconceptions that are so common uh, bench press heavy squat heavy quarter squat you know um, but again thanks a lot uh, we'll talk soon man good luck with the upcoming season everything that's going on thank you man I appreciate it. this was fun yeah absolutely we'll talk soon take care all right